Hello and welcome to um, Engaging and Empowering School Libraries, a podcast that aims to raise the profile of school libraries by talking about topics that are current across education and teaching. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts and school librarians Ruth Maloney and Sabrina Cox. Tonight we're going to talk about graphic novels and their role in raising literacy levels. I want to welcome special guests, Paul Register, school librarian and founder of the Excelsior Awards, which I'm sure he'll tell us more about during our conversation tonight, and Rebecca Simpson Hargreaves, lecturer in education at the University of Manchester, who I caught posting up pictures of graphic novels on Twitter the other day and now and realised that she'd be perfect for tonight's discussion. So I think we should start with an introduction um, from yourselves, to be honest with you, um, telling me a little bit about your role and, and your link, even if it's tenuous, to graphic novels. So let's start with Paul. Welcome tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, right, do you want, do you want a, 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 my history as a reader or my history as a professional librarian? Well, just how you got into the graphic novel side of reading, I suppose. What what sparked your interest in graphic novels? As a school, um, Was it a school librarian thing or was it something else? No, I think, um, I, to be honest, I was talking to another school librarian about this recently, uh, one of the judges on my Excelsior Award, and uh, we had a very similar kind of path where um, we both started reading comics um, when we were about seven or eight. <clears throat> which were back then it was it was black and white reprints of American superhero books. Um, and then we read comics and graphic novels for quite a long time. And then we stopped when we went to university. Right. And she said she stopped because um, we were both studying. What did she study? Politics, I think. We were, she was reading weighty things, you know, so she had to park all that to one side, the reading for pleasure of her life, really, okay. uh, and, and get on with her studies. Um, and I was studying English literature, so I kind of did the same thing, uh, although my reason for doing so was probably more finance led than anything else. I just couldn't afford to buy the sheer amount of monthly comics I was buying at that time. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of come out the end of it and you start rediscovering all this stuff again. And being a school librarian means you can kind of do it in a more professional kind of circle as well, I guess. OK. Um, so so, so do you think you've come across more graphic novels because of being a school librarian or, or is it the other way around? No, I think, um, yeah, definitely so. I mean, I mean, the work I do with, with the Excelsior Award, I, I have to be on top of what's coming out mm. all the time. I have to be, you know, in sync with, with whatever's current. Yeah. So I'm always reading things with an eye on the next year's awards shortlist in mind. Right. So yeah, I um whereas a lot of school librarians will read a lot of like young adult fiction because That's... they want to connect that way. Yeah. Um I have to kind of keep on top of up-to-date graphic novels, That's... which is a labor of love in many respects. <laughs> you know. It sounds lovely. We'll come back to to the Excelsior Awards in a minute, but I just want to welcome uh, Rebecca. Can you just explain a little bit about what you do and, and what your you know when I saw your post about um graphic novels the other day on Twitter what was what was all that about why what what is the interest for you I suppose um well I started reading graphic novels and comics uh, at such a really really young so 
I grew up um, abroad and it's just part and parcel of everyday life over there. Um, so, you know, starting off with, with uh, things like, you know, getting English comics over there, like Beano, Dandy, going out and spending my money on it, but also things like Tantan and your Asterix and uh, all of those wonderful kind of um, really rich text bits that you get over there. So it's always been something that I've sort of grown up with, really. And then coming over here, and first of all, I trained as a primary teacher, and I don't remember looking at graphic novels at all during my course of being... Uh, my primary teacher course and I specialised in children's literature and it was only really uh, to look at them again and, and started rediscovering them and and I'm really pleased to say that particularly within the primary age phase it, they're starting to get more and more into there so when I became the teacher trainer um, visual literacy has always been something that I've been really interested in it, it's part of my research so it was like right okay I need to then start expanding my own um, knowledge of, of what's out there and there are so many wonderful people who can inspire and, and booksellers and librarians such as yourselves that can give really good recommendations. Now what you saw was me using graphic novels as part of my teacher as readers reading for pleasure group. Um, it's in combination with the Open University and the UK Literacy Association and we meet up once every term or every half term and we talk about different types of books so it was, right, let's see about graphic novels and how we can expand the knowledge of graphic novels so we can get them into children's hands, but also to let teachers know that they aren't, I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but know that they're not inferior to other books. If anything, I think they're probably superior to, to other <laughs> books, but I could rant about that for quite some time. But yes, yeah, so it, it's all part and parcel of, of what I do. Uh, as a teacher trainer but also I, I teach on various other courses including a master's and, and it, it's looking at navigating the visual literacy world but through um sort of the graphic novel elements that's fascinating you know it's 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 something that has as a as a school librarian um, my role with supporting school libraries uh, as a school's library service and and putting graphic novels into schools it's funny how they're not always seen and recognized as good quality um so so i suppose i'm going to start with my first question is is you know what are graphic novels and how do they differ from other novels and aren't they just comics paul <laughs> Um, <clears throat> thank you. The way I used to um, describe them to kids myself was as posh comics. Okay. Um, the, the term itself, graphic novel, can cause a little bit of um, friction, a little bit of argument amongst people, certainly amongst comics writers and comics artists. Um, but there are a lot of examples of graphic novels that are made up of comics that have already been published. And certainly with Marvel and DC, who are the two biggest publishers of graphic novels and comics in the world, what they will do is they will run monthly comics of maybe 25 to 30 pages, and then they will collect them together into a, a format where they might have one to six issues of a, a comic run. Okay. And they'll do it on better paper, and they'll do it with a nice sort of semi-hardcover um, so in that regard, that's why I call them posh comics, because they are just comics, really. But we 
but at the same time they're not. They've got to be differentiated from comics because comics are very, you know, one ninety nine, two ninety nine, very just papery, disposable. Whereas a graphic novel is a collection of comics, and so you wouldn't really read it once and throw it in the bin. You would, you would keep it. So, so is the vocabulary in a in a graphic novel? Better than a comic? Similar to a comic? Better than a novel? Um, well, <clears throat> I mean, the vocabulary can be very good if you're adapting Shakespeare or Dickens into a graphic novel format. It's no different, really. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it, is, it is a funny one. It's, it's difficult to describe. I mean, there are graphic novels today that are published in their own rights and aren't connected to... Um, comics didn't exist as comics beforehand um we had this strange kind of idea of like a reading ladder i always find in this in this country where kids start off quite young with baby books and then they sort of graduate to picture books and then it's sort of lower ability um, novels and then higher ability novels and we seem to keep climbing up this literacy ladder and graphic novels don't seem to find any way in no which is a bit odd in some respects. I don't quite know why they're on the outside of this all the time. Okay, can but... I just bring, can I bring Ruth in? She's, she's got a question. Mm. Yeah, I'm interested in, in this question about what graphic novels are because it seems to encompass a breadth of texts that no other genre would be expected to cover. So, I mean, you're talking about kind of Marvel and DC and then I think about... Uh, something like Heartstopper, which has got to be at the moment our absolutely favourite. But you know, texts mm. like Mouse, uh, Spielman's Mouse, that's a that's a, a we don't do A level, but that's an A level equivalent text in our school, you know, and really deserves some analysis and is a standalone novel. It's not a collection. Yeah, yeah. It was never written in another form, you know, and is and then there are books like um, I often think about the Marvels which is half novel, half images, which is a really interesting mix of graphic novels. I yeah. can't think of another genre which is expected to encompass all of these things and we dismiss so quickly with the term, oh, it's a graphic novel. Mm. You know, they're incomparable for me, you know, DC comic and you know, something like Mouse. They're not trying to achieve the same thing. They're not aimed at the same no, audience no. necessarily. Um, so I agree with you, I entirely agree, that, but there isn't a, a rung on the ladder for the graphic novels, partly, I suppose, because they're doing, they are so varied. One, one thing I will pick you up about, if you don't mind, is um, don't think of graphic novels as a genre. Um, okay. they're, they're, just a, they're just a storytelling medium. Okay, yeah. So if you think of it like normal novels, you can have all different manner of genres within normal novels. It's exactly the same with graphic novels. Yep. The only difference is you get more pictures in graphic novels. <laughs> That's pretty Fair much enough. it, really, if you want to boil it down, you know? Yeah. Um, the, on the only reason people get um, confused is too strong a word, but people make that error is because graphic novels, because of the output of the two biggest publishers, which is Marvel and DC, being largely superhero which is a genre you know yep. um that tends to dominate everything so everyone people seem to think that comics and graphic novels are just superheroes 
and it's a lovely little sort of niche idea when people start adapting um, like Romeo and Juliet into a graphic novel format. It's like, oh, I never thought of that before. It can be done. There's no reason why it can't be. Yeah. Rebecca, when you're talking to teachers then about graphic novels, trainee teachers about graphic novels, what's usually the reaction to them? Actually, the reaction's usually really welcome. Um, they're really seen as, uh, as something that is really interesting. So I do something called slow reading um, with graphic novels. So I'll put a spread um, under the visualizer and they get little um, tiny little viewfinders and they literally have to go from panel to panel and, and, and kind of look through and then they have to think about what does the gutter mean? What, you know, thinking about the language and the grammar that goes along with, with graphic novels and comics, etc., and learning how to navigate them and reading slowly really gets them to zone in and think about, okay, well, this character's eyes are doing this, but the words are saying this. So how, how are they kind of working with one or another or against one another? What can it tell? So we talk about how they're really incredibly complex multimodal texts, because that's what they are. You know, you've got that pictorial images with the written text, you know, sequential form, that kind of aesthetic response, reader response, which is something that I'm really interested in that, that really kind of sucks you in. Um, and it's such a careful balance between that visual and textual and the design. But, and it's also for me, I think particularly for student teachers, but also for pupils, um, particularly, I, I mean, I'm primary phase, so that's kind of the way I look at it. And it's interesting that Ruth mentioned mouse for A-level because we use sections of mouse with year six and I say sections, not all of it, because obviously there are some bits that are just, you know, not suitable for 11 year olds, but it's, they're so rich. And I think that they can span different age groups. And I think that's also the real sort of um, attraction of it. But it, it's about developing those strategies to look at really. And it, hearing about the ladder is all, Awful, can I just say we are breaking that down in primary as much as we can? Um, because you know, uh, picture books we are always constantly fighting against that picture books shouldn't be used in key stage two alongside with graphic novels. But actually, you know, there are so many sophisticated ones out there that you would not use, absolutely mm. wouldn't use. <clears throat> and I think it's something that's coming from you know, quite old ideas that oh if, if you can't read a proper novel then you have to read something like a graphic novel but uh, you know they're so complicated and actually when you when you unpick them properly the strategies the, the skills the understanding that they have to do to be able to kind of read it and the the ability to provoke such powerful emotions I mean, we're always saying to children you need to write more you need to write more you need to write more well actually that's often waffle, <laughs> I'd say. You can get really big novels that say not a lot. And, and I think this is unfortunately an impact from the governmental push on, you know, for, for, for writing for exams, for example, you have to write as much as humanly possible, where if you can get across such a powerful range of emotions in only a few words and few image and that, and that interplay, then surely that's, really what we're looking for absolutely um, I, I must admit i i wholeheartedly agree with you about picture books being used for older students um you know the we're going off topic slightly but the greenaway books being used in in secondary schools 
with students that you know are engaging with the pictures and and what you can read through the pictures is hugely beneficial to them um and i i think that that the more you talk both of you the the skill set in reading a graphic novel is something that i probably wasn't very aware of myself so you know we're talking about graphic novels being something as as something that's complex but but do we talk about them being good for you like we talk about reading a novel is good for you in the same way do you think but I, it's I think really funny I've not heard of that before that something is, that reading a novel is good for you I don't know maybe it's because uh, I maybe I don't read enough novels um, <laughs> I think after after picking them apart so much in secondary it kind of put me off for a while um but I don't I don't know what do you mean by good for you well I think it's more along the lines of the fact that it's good for your mental health isn't it if you read a fiction book it's um good for your vocabulary because you're you know engaging with more words it's it's that kind of good but but actually the way you're talking sounds to me like graphic novels are probably more <laughs> better for you really on a par. I mean for for me and I'm thinking about kind of young children and, and looking at get the world of gaming so um I recently read quite a lot of Minecraft books I love playing Minecraft my children are into Minecraft and that's how it kind of came to me and I've got a few Minecraft graphic novels and thinking about young children and how they're you know they're, they're getting their vocabulary is huge because they're coming across it you know words like smelting and furnace and prismarine uh, and all of those types of things that they wouldn't normally come across are being introduced in in, in the graphic novel oh. genre and you know with it and they're accessing that because they're interested in the topic that they're in as well. Absolutely. Paul, can I bring you back in? Uh, yes, I was just going to, it just reminded me then talking about vocabulary that um, one of the most famous comics writers ever of all time is probably Stan Lee. Oh, yes. And um, if you ever, if you ever look up any interviews with Stan Lee about um, his writing style when he first started writing comics in the 60s, he always talks about using a college level vocabulary. That's the phrase he used. As far as he was concerned, he wasn't interested in talking down to kids. He wanted to present them with a level of vocabulary that would raise them up to his level. Um, and I suppose you can do that more if you have a picture of <coughs> words, because it, there's your explanation. If you don't necessarily understand the word you're reading, you've got more, you know, you know, we talk about you know, children having to to read the sentence to gain understanding of, of particular words. Whereas I suppose with a graphic novel, you can push that boundary even further because you are providing a tool for them to to help them navigate that. Is that do you think that's why it, it was done that way? It's this, it, yeah, that's a little bit of it. Um, but I, I mean, when Stan himself was writing comics, there was a, a greater emphasis on descriptive um boxes attached to the the panels the comics panels as as the decades have gone on i think comics artists have become more sophisticated and they don't tend to use that kind of descriptive text quite so much they let the story and the pictures kind of flow in a maybe better way and, yeah. and carry the story forward but in the 60s 70s 80s you would see a lot more descriptive passages and descriptive passages re required the phrase i always used to like with stan that you still see on comics covers today 
is sensors shattering, which is <laughs> just a crazy phrase. Nobody ever uses that in real life, but it, it, it would be like a, a, like a hook that you would get people in. It would be undercover, you know, sensors yeah. shattering first issue. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, you know, can you imagine reading the words sensors shattering when you're seven years old? This is not easy stuff, you know. No, not at all. Not at all. So would you say that we're missing out on something if you don't read a graphic novel? And and you know, is it is it is it something that we should be encouraging all our students to to try at least one? Uh Rebecca, can I bring you back in? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is um there is one for everyone out there picking up on your previous point about helping children to navigate who may not be um up on their reading level as it were who may need a little bit more more support but graphic novels are really useful for children who might have english as an additional language um you, know, you can you can both share the text together so if you want children reading together you know that can and they can understand what's going on and it can be really supportive um but in terms of you know thinking about trying to get them into the hands of children it's like Paul was saying you know I've got some great graphic novels that look at classical literature or look at myths and legends so I've got one of Beowulf I've got one of um that looks like an adaptation from um uh, the Baker Street um Irregulars that were part of Sherlock Holmes etc I'm looking next to me so I've got loads, <laughs> loads on the side of me um we've got Alex Ryder so we've, we've got there's such a range out there. And I think that that's what's so lovely about it is if, you know, if you're into magical elements, you can find magical element books. If you're into sort of poetic ones, you can find some that go on there. There really is, you know, as Paul was saying, it, it's endless on there. And it certainly is something I feel like you are missing out on that opportunity. Um, just like any reading diet, you need to have a balanced reading diet, you know? and find out ones that you like and that you don't like and uh, it's really useful in terms of helping them to also navigate kind of the digital world and it's enjoyable let's not, <laughs> let's not forget the reading for pleasure element of it we want children to read for pleasure absolutely like I said you know I did used to read comics as a child um being low and dandy but but Never. I can't say I've ever. I've I've obviously handled, flicked through graphic novels. Um, I can't say I've ever read one cover to cover. This is shocking. What? <laughs> I have horrid faces on my screen. <laughs> um, so I will endeavour to put that right. <laughs> we'll we'll give you some recommendations. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> we are librarians. It's what we do. Absolutely. So, so that leads me very nicely onto my next question, which is where do you start to build a solid graphic novel collection for the whole school? You know, I, the schools that I, you know, so it's a few years since I was in a, in a school library properly, but most graphic novel collections were very much on a shelf. And actually, funnily enough, Paul, the fact that you said that we should be um, you know, they are across genre. So, yeah. so I suppose there's several questions there. Should they be shelved separately or should they be shelved on the, you know, on the, in, in the right genre or alphabetically with all the other novels? How, how would it work? Oh. So where, where do I start, Paul? <laughs> well, one of the things that um, library management software systems tend to do, which really gets my goat, is that when you're cataloging new books, 
and you know you can you can scan the barcode and it will fill in the details for you to a certain degree when it says classification it will always give you 741 which is the arts books okay yes which is just horribly wrong because they're not just art books and you don't want them there and frankly if you kept them with the art books nobody would read them no. because no. you want them where the fiction stuff is yeah um so i i do keep mine i've always kept mine in, in a separate area um it, it just looks nicer you know if you can it's get the, them cover out as well it just looks good it's a, you've got to make it an attractive area so do you think it's do you think that children who read graphic novels are likely to stay with graphic novels or or if they're if they're looking for they if they're looking for a graphic novel they just want to find that is what they want to find um is that one of the reasons you keep them separate do you think um yeah yeah definitely but you, you've also you've got the issue that um i found with doctor who novels as well is that i mean i don't know how the librarians keep their fiction sections i keep mine by author alphabetically yeah. which i think is what most people do to be fair yeah. um now if you had six spider-man graphic novels you might have six different authors there so where you might be like if you had a collection of Harry Potters, they'd all be under R for Rowling. All your Dahl books would be together, yeah. which is great for the kid, because if the kids like Roald Dahl books, they know exactly where they are. So if you're taking those six Spider-Man books and you're putting them at, at B, um, C, yeah. F, yeah. X, you know, that's not helping anybody because the kids will, the kids that haven't got the confidence to ask you will just assume you've only got that one Spider-Man book. And if they've read it, they won't come back for it anymore because they'll yes. think, well, I've read that now. So you've got to keep them all together. In order to uh, be... You, you, you've got to make it simple. You've got to make it easy for the kids to navigate what's on your shelves. So, yeah, I do I always keep them apart from the fiction and separate from the fiction, yeah. Would you say that your graphic novel collection is much smaller than, than obviously, your fiction collection? Is there as many graphic novels available? <coughs> this is a question. Um. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. My graphic novel selection in my current school is maybe four or five shelves. Okay. Which is probably less than ten percent of the regular fiction section. Yeah. Um. That's because that's the number that have been published, or no, no, it's it's um percentage of students that read them. I I think if it's. If I'm being honest, it's um, graphic novels do still tend to be a little bit niche. Right. So um, you, I don't really see as you would have more than you would your regular fiction. Um, okay. But a good balance is, is good. Um, just, yeah. And you do have to have plenty. You can't just get away with buying 20, for example, and, and, and hoping that's enough. No, absolutely. Um, just get in as many as you can. There's also an expense issue as well. Um, a lot of them do tend to be a little bit more expensive than regular fiction. Okay, that's something I didn't know. That's interesting. But I suppose oh, yeah. they take more effort to produce because yeah, of all the... Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot more in involved in them. The paper quality is better. Uh, some of them will be imported from the States or Europe, Japan. So there's, um, yeah. Okay. Ruth, uh, Sabrina, sorry, you've got your hand up. Do you want to come in? I, I just wanted to say that I've my graphic novel collection I've been building up as much as I can over the last four years. So I actually have three shelves of graphic novels and I've kind of got them organised with general graphic novels, 
novel adaptations so like the Charles Dickens and the Jane Austens that are out there and the Alex Riders and then I have um, a spinner where I put all my manga and my TV tie-in books like the Doctor Who's and that they go on there my biggest problem is space I don't have yeah. the space to <coughs> play as many graphic novels as I would like because I have found the the boom in reading graphic novels at the moment has just been astronomical in our school and it's lovely to see but yeah they are great things why why do you think that they've suddenly boomed I think purely because our local primary schools don't have them in stock um and the older students who have finally decided to come back into the library having hated the library for so many years have discovered actually we have Marvel and DC in the library for the first time ever and it's like we want to read these graphic novels that have never been on the shelves so a lot of it is word has got around in the school that Miss has got these books in and you can ask for things and they're really excited about it. Which is good, but obviously if they're expensive, the budget is tight, then then yes. it's, it's that balance, isn't it, between more of them or more of your normal fiction, I suppose. Well, it, it's, it's just a question of being clever with your budget as well and clever with your funding. Yeah. So you, you, you can get it all, you can get stuff in without having to spend a, a lot of money, you know? Um, I mean, the Excelsior Award that I run, we, we try and keep budgets in mind when we put shortlists together. So... Any any shortlist we put on that, which will be five books, I think this year we said it wouldn't cost more than sixty-five pounds. Okay. Um, so ex- explain a little bit more about the Excelsior Awards and how that came about, Paul, for me. All right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the Excelsior Awards started as a um, a guest section of the Sheffield Children's Book Award in two thousand and ten, um, and the organisers of that award. Um, they they had a guest award every year. So some years it would be poetry, some years it would be baby books. I think they even had a bath books one once, you know, books that you could put in the bath with a kid. Um, and one year they decided they wanted to do graphic novels. Um, the downside for them was that they had nobody on their staff that knew anything about graphic novels. So they asked me to get involved. And it was all a bit last minute, but we cobbled together quite a nice shortlist. Um, and honest to God, I can't remember what won that year it's a long it's a long time ago now I honestly kind of can't remember um but the year after I went back to him and I said I've got a lot of ideas of how we can make it better this year I think we've we've really hit something there we've really tapped into something because the kids at the Sheffield schools who were taking part have been really enthusiastic about it and been really up for it um and their response was well we're not doing it in 2011 because it, it was only ever a one-off so I said oh okay fine so I started doing it myself Nice. Um, in collaboration with the school I was working at at the time. Um, and we just picked it up and we carried it on. And we had, I think, 17 schools do it the first year. Uh, we had uh, maybe, I think, about 12 across Sheffield. And we had several more who strangely caught wind of what we were doing just outside of Sheffield. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how. I think they just heard things on, on the internet uh, and emailed me and said, can we join in? So I said, yeah, okay, that's fine, more the merrier. Um, so we had 17 in the first year, and then the second year, 2012, I decided to open it up nationally because there was clearly some sort of hunger there for this sort of thing. Um, and we had 77 schools wow. do it. Um, and so we've just been going since then, really. Um, we've made tweaks along the way. We've made evolutions, I like to call them, and, and adaptations. 
Um, we used to have eight books on one shortlist. Uh, and then a few years ago, we introduced a primary school version. Um, and then we sort of subsumed that into the main Excelsior Award. So now we have four different awards for four different age categories. Okay. Uh, we have white, blue, red and black. White being for primary. Blue being for years seven, eight and nine. Red being for years nine and ten. And black being for six formers. Which means okay. you can put the really sweary books in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find many six formers join in? Um, the blue and the red ones are definitely still the more popular ones, but it's just nice to be able to offer something to primary into sixth form. Um, they, they don't come in the same numbers, but it's and it would be nice if they did. But we do get, yeah, we do get some, yeah. It's it's nice to see. Fantastic. So so is there a difference between manga and graphic novels? Or would you say that they're part and parcel of the same thing? Um, manga just means Japanese comics. So okay. in that respect, no, there's not a lot of difference. Um, I'm sure Sabrina will agree with me, but manga looks absolutely beautiful when it's on the shelves or on the spinner. Just seeing this long row of, of books that are all the same height. If you've got OCD, <laughs> just, just get some manga. It's marvellous. Just these, these rows of series of books look fantastic. Um, so yeah, there is a there is a difference, there is a cultural difference because they are they are produced in Japan and then they're translated into English by American publishers. Right. And then we import them basically from, from America. Okay. Uh, that's how that's how most of the manga publishers you'll see in the UK operate. Rebecca, can I bring you back in? Yeah. Um... So in terms of the, well, I was just thinking about how you organise the library shelves, you would have a heart attack if you saw mine. I do mine by theme, so <laughs> it would completely uh, make your head explode. Um, but in terms of you know, manga being a distinct genre as well, I think it's in terms of obviously having the similar structures to sort of the graphic novel elements of it and, and the themes that they cover from action and adventure, et cetera. Um, it's that element as well, I think, from reading from right to left instead of left to right, you know, from the back of the book to the front, as it were, um, that sometimes children can find that there's quite a nice book in as well uh, as something to do. But, you know, I think this is, but it is bearing in mind that in terms of the, the way that they are kind of categorised, you need to be quite careful. Um, so you know, uh, in terms of they're usually in broad categories relating to sort of age and even gender. Um, I've yet to find ones that are, the, you've got like the shonen for sort of teen boys and the shoujo for, for, your, for your girls or teen girls. And then you've got your Komodo for your young children, um, Kodomo or even not Komodo, that's a dragon. Um, <laughs> so it's categorized first really by audience and, and then by genre. So. It's, it's nice if you've got a pupil who's really interested in magic, you know, and if they I, identify as male, then you might go, right, I'll have a look first in Shonen ma Magic Manga. Um, you know, things like My Hero Academia is really, really popular amongst you know, all genders. And I, and I find, for me personally, I find it very uncomfortable to genderize, you know, um, books. I think anything should be read by everybody. But it, it's that just making sure that that you don't accidentally go right. I'm going to go and buy a load of manga for my for my school library, and and you're not looking. They usually have quite helpful um, things on the back that tell you if it's for teen, etc. 
you just okay. have to be quite careful for that because there are some that are specifically for adults and they are very over sexualized and it's just like oh she's suddenly got her breasts out where's that come from <laughs> um and kind of not really quite appropriate for little children absolutely absolutely things like you know the pokemon etc uh, and your um the other ones that are kind of based on on books like zelda and stuff like that is is quite safe on there so one of the, one of the things that i'm aware of when we bought um manga it, it tends to run in very long series oh my goodness and it's really expensive as a parent of a child who loves yeah. manga i think so, we're, on, we're on number five and i think there's 14 <laughs> so so as a school librarian would you recommend they buy the first five or six or do you think you you have to, you bought a set uh, they started the series so you have to stay with it what do you reckon yeah my my policy has often been um, if there's no cheap, cheap, um, cheap-ish box sets available, if you're trying something new, a new series that you don't quite know if it'll be popular, I always used to buy the first four. Right. And if the first four are popular, buy the next four, and so on and so on. Right. And judge it that way, really. Yeah, because it's very difficult, because, what, yeah, 14 or 15 in a series, it's not money you want to be spending if it's definitely not... Oh, there's, there's series that are in the 60s now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... Yeah, but I think just can, very, very long running series. Sorry, you can find what? Well, sorry, I think you can find ones that you know are going to be popular. So you can like the yeah. amulet books; they're they're always really, really popular staples. So you know that they're going to be out quite a lot. So you probably wouldn't, you know, you can get. I think there's only about eight, six or eight of these series of that, so it's not too bad. But you know, definitely uh, buying a whole load of fifteen is uh, quite a monetary commitment. <laughs> Absolutely, Ruth. Can I bring you back in? Yeah, I mean, this is a proper librarian's point um, and goes back to something that Paul said earlier. My Part of my difficulty with manga is not just the massive series runs, but the quality of the publication. They don't last. The kids read them very quickly. So there's, there's a high turnover, which means they're in a lot of hands, which means they're falling apart. I'm paying, I mean, I bought a set of 16 Tokyo Ghouls the other day, 90 pounds. And, you know, even plastic bound and, you know, looked after, they just aren't, they, they, that's a really difficult buy for me, particularly for the manga, less so for the um, more, you know, for the more standard graphic novels, because they do tend to be better quality print, the pages last longer it's a really boring librarian point. And if they were mine at home, I wouldn't care. I would agree the lovely run of them on the shelf, all of that stuff. But from a school library point of view, they're really tricky despite how popular they are. Yeah, that is one of the problems, isn't it? I suppose is that, is that you know, if something is popular, it's gonna get read. And if it's got read, it's- <laughs> You're not supposed to read them. That's the thing. <laughs> they're there to look at on the shelves. What are they doing? <laughs> Let's just just change the subject ever so slightly and take the conversation back to the reluctant reader that reads a graphic novel. Um, and I think I know the answer to this question before I ask it, having listened to you both talking so far, is that is there a is there a need for somebody, a child who reads a graphic novel to transition? to 
proper novels, if that's the right word? Um, or do you think that actually if you've got them hooked on graphic novels, then they don't need to transition to anything else? What do you reckon, Paul? Um, no, I don't, I don't think there's any requirement to transition or ever leave graphic novels if, if you don't want to, to be perfectly honest. Um, I would make that argument with something like audiobooks as well, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if, it's, if it's what you enjoy and it's it's what's getting you reading, uh, then stick with it. I don't I don't see it as being a stepping stone to anything else in, in that regard. Um, perhaps a stepping stone to higher quality graphic novels. Okay. Um, there's a, I mean, in terms of reading ability, there's a world of difference between Simpsons comics, for example, yeah. and um, a fantastic biography on George Orwell that I read last year. Right. You know, they're both aimed at very different people. The Simpsons book is definitely aimed at the 12 year old lads. And this, or, this Orwell biography is, is aimed at people like me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this this idea that um, it's just for reluctant readers um, is is no more valid than it is with regular novels, I would say. Okay. Um, and I don't think there's any need to to transition over in any way, really. No. So Rebecca, let's bring you back in. Dealing with working with training teachers, do you think that that if you were to say that to the teachers that you're training that they would accept that or do you think that they would be oh, wanting to do transition <laughs> it's really interesting because my question is should you have a transition text the idea of transition text i mean yeah. already there you're saying that one type of book is better than another Absolutely. and this is why i mean we sometimes have problems with you know and it's things that i've come across when i've sort of done cpd for teachers is that it's kind of that old throwover, or, you know, we've mentioned it before, it's not a proper book, but it is a proper book. And it, it's almost as well as getting rid of that, in the embarrassment that some children feel that they may enjoy it. So I always say to them, and I always say to teachers, and I always say to my trainees as well, that during reading for pleasure time, you should be reading these in front of the children, reading alongside the children so that they can see that actually they are completely valid. Um, However, I'm very realistic in that some people are quite old school and they feel very much that, you know, what they need, you know, they can use it as a stepping stone. And I think you can. And I think having that knowledge of us how to do it, you know, is absolutely fine. So say, for example, um, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. So the, graphic, the Graveyard Book, Volume 1, Number 2, the, gra the graphic novels are absolutely, they're just fantastic. Um, but I also have a copy of the Graveyard Book novel. Now, interestingly, I started reading the novel first and I couldn't get into it. And I bought the graphic novels and that was it. I demolished them completely. Right. And I was the, <laughs> the same story and it's just a different way of, of, you know, igniting your interest in there. And I may go back to, to have a read of the novel, but I may not. Likewise, with, with the Hilda, you know, you've got Hilda novels alongside the Hilda graphic novels. So, you know, you could put them next to each other on the shelf if you wish to, you know, and if children want to, after they've read the graphic novels, dip into the novels or likewise the other way around, then, then they can. But I feel in terms of, um, should they be transitions? No, just as Paul said, read whatever you want to read. I mean, as adults, how many of you stick to the same kind of book? I mainly read poetry, information books, and graphic novels and picture books. And that's about it. 
that's about my reading diet <laughs> i think it sounds perfect paul can i bring you back in um, yeah, so Rebecca just reminded me of a, a story I've told many, many times to many, many kids and staff, really. So some people might have already heard this. But um, at one of the schools I used to work at uh, a long time ago, there was a, a teacher, an English teacher, who brought his class in, a group of year eights, for a reading lesson. And he did what was the right thing to do at that time. He just said to all the kids, right, you've got five minutes to pick a book, and then I want you all sat down quietly reading the book for the rest of the period. Right, that's fine. That works great for me. Um, so all the kids sort of buzzed around for five minutes, had a good browse, picked off picked what they want to read, sat down. And there was one year eight boy who was stood at the graphic novel section, which, had, which happened to be right behind where I was sat, right behind my computer. And he was reading a graphic novel called uh, Planet Hulk, which is um, a, a, it's a big, hefty book. It's about 400 pages. And... It's a, a lot of the storyline was pinched for the Thor Ragnarok film, actually. Um, so it's got it's got some welly, it's got some quality. Um, and he was stood reading it, and I just I must admit, because I was irritated because he was in my eyeline, I said to this lad, "Why don't you take that and sit down with it?" And this was a lad whose whose reading age was not particularly high, um, and had never really caught the reading bug up to that point. And so I said, "Why don't you sit down with that book and read it?" And he just closed it. And said, "No, everyone will set the mick out of me." Oh, and he no. just put it back on the shelf, wandered off, and just randomly picked up another book. He didn't even look at it. Picked up a normal prose novel and sat down and just pretended to read that for the next forty-five minutes. And it's like, oh, it was just one of those heartbreaking moments. Which is so sad that this this kid who may have found something he really, really wanted to read, kind of felt he couldn't do it Absolutely. because of peer pressure or teacher judgment or whatever it might have been but really just didn't want to didn't want to be labeled as the kid reading planet hulk can i bring sabrina in yeah just following on from that i think that's why rebecca's point about teachers modeling reading graphic novels and manga you know i've always got my book that i'm reading on the the table beside me and they see some really weird stuff because i read science fiction fantasy and um but I read manga as well, so that would be on my desk. And I think moments like that, if that lad had seen that you were reading a manga or a graphic novel or he'd seen a teacher reading it, it would have just given him that little boost of, actually, no, that's okay to go and pick up. And I think that's where our role as librarians and teachers is just so important to, to be constantly modelling that it doesn't matter what you read, as long as you're enjoying it, it's okay. Absolutely. Rebecca? I think some of the reading for pleasure strategies that, that kind of we talk about and and thinking about using them within the libraries, you can do like blind date with a book. So you can cover the, you know, cover the whole book itself and they don't know what they've got and they get to take that home and they get to read it and they don't know what it is. Or it, it's always, or you would you like this reading menu when it's got different suggestions that, that go on and like it. If you like this, if you like this film, you may like this book, et cetera, and have that in there. We are really trying to get um, more graphic novels within teacher planning as well with particularly I mean obviously I can only speak for the primary section but um because we have a lot more freedom in primary because obviously we choose the books that we share with the class we choose what our planning will be we're not we haven't got set text that we have to cover so I know particularly within year six they are looking at a lot of graphic novels that 
and using them as, as a base to, to do planning and um, see a series of, of um, lessons on. And I'm hoping that that will then filter in and, and take away some of the embarrassment of when they do go up into high school to be able to choose kind of any any books that are on there. Absolutely. That's really good to hear is the fact that, it, you know, it is it is become more normalised that that, you know, it is seen that a graphic novel can be used within within a teaching tool with as a teaching tool which is fantastic which is really good well, I've just noticed the time and it's already nearly five to eight so I'm going to bring the conversation to a close um but before I do I want to do a brief opportunity to promote my membership to any schools looking for ways to boost independent learning literacy and well-being through your school library if you're not sure how to make this happen, my membership programme offers training and support for school librarians and teachers and creates opportunities to engage across the curriculum. You can find more information in the link in the show notes below. So just to finish off, I have one last question for you all. Um, what would your final message be to those considering um, starting to build a graphic novel section in their school library? Can I go with, can I go with, well, I'm going to go with um, Paul. What would you say first? Um, I do actually get asked this question quite a lot anyway. Um, and two things I would recommend. One is slightly self-serving, but it is common sense as well. Um, I always guide them to my Excelsior World website. And I say, Absolutely. if you've got a certain amount of budget you want to spend on graphic novels, have a look at the shortlisted books from, from the past years on there. And moreover, have a look at the winners, because the winners, you know, have been popular. Absolutely. Well, I, I will add the link to the show notes to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a perfect way to, to, to end for you, Paul. Thank you very much. And, and Rebecca, you. do you have any final words? Yeah, absolutely. I can go for it. So um, particularly for any primary librarians or any primary colleagues, et cetera, um, but also tipping into lower key stage uh, three. Um, there are really good graphic novel bloggers out there, graphic novel people on Twitter. Uh, one of my favorites is Richard Ruddock. Um, he has a Padlet site, which is an absolute gold mine and you can find the link on his Twitter page or I could pass it on so then you can put it on afterwards. Also visiting, um, just imagine website that has um, loads of different books that are reviewed by teachers, by librarians, um, etc. And if you're not quite sure whether or not the book would be suitable for you know children or what they're after, or if, if a child just says, I'm really interested in this, um, they're completely um, there just for you to just kind of pop in their search engine reviews and, and they'll give you really good honest reviews. Um, I'm a reviewer on this. <laughs> I know that we, we we are encouraged to give very honest uh, reviews on them. Um, and just also have a look what's in your in your local bookshops and obviously in your local library as well. Um, get down there. The more we can encourage, hopefully the more that um, the council can get into our libraries for us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so thanks for joining me today, Paul and Rebecca. Um, it's been really interesting to chat with you. I hope that we have managed to get some people thinking about the importance of graphic novels in raising literacy levels as part of their library collections. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any future discussions. Thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>